In the second season of this podcast, we'll be exploring some great works of literature that have something to impart to us about the nature and importance of love. If it's true, as it has been said, that Eros is the brother of poetry, then what better place to look for love than amongst the writers and poets and to share in their experiences? And the great thing about turning to such writers is that they don't edify. When speaking of love, order is seldom without chaos. Light is not without darkness, and hope is not without disappointment. They all agree on this, though, that despite its many forms and contradictions, love is no small thing, and always, always leaves us a little richer in spirit. This is The Wisdom Of, and this is Episode 3, Shelley's Frankenstein. A brief summary. So, Frankenstein was written by Mary Shelley, and incredibly, she was still a teenager, only 19 years old, when she wrote it. Now, the story goes as follows. Compelled to probe the deepest mysteries of creation and to discover the elixir of life, Victor Frankenstein sets out to create a person in what is one of the most unusual scientific experiments ever conceived. But as soon as his work stirs to life and becomes animated, Frankenstein is repulsed by what he sees. He cries out, quote, I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. End of quote. Frankenstein immediately abandons him, leaving him completely alone in the shambles of a dark workshop. The creature was never given a name, and so by extension has no social identity, no family. Throughout Mary Shelley's novel, he's simply referred to as the monster and the wretch. The creature is left to fend for himself in the dark woods of Germany. He remains helpless and alone for the rest of his life, becoming more and more bitter and miserable as time goes on. And eventually, he seeks revenge on his cursed creator. At the end, in the dark waves of the North Pole, he finds his peace in suicide. Probably most people seeing this now are a little bit confused by the choice with a subject like love, I'm sure Frankenstein is not the first novel that comes to mind. Most people probably just think about it as a, you know, an old Gothic tale. And further people think about it as Frankenstein, as a kind of a pop culture monster. And then even more people are sick of hearing smug people say, oh, Frankenstein's not the monster, the doctor's Frankenstein. Uh, 
But like we said at the beginning, we're going to focus on Frankenstein and its connection with love. Yeah, Frankenstein embodies several very important themes, including the, the Gothic one, as you mentioned. Actually, it's funny, the, the idea started off as a kind of ghost story contest. But it also incorporates themes about the dangers of human knowledge and the consequences of technological progress. Actually, Shelley had subtitled her novel The Modern Prometheus, and this is not insignificant. In classical mythology, of course, Prometheus was viewed as the father of humankind, someone who fashioned us out of clay and who stole fire from the gods to give to humans so as to enable them to prosper, to create, and to discover new things. But during Shelley's time, Prometheus came to be viewed more and more as a symbol of the overwhelming power of scientific and technological progress. And I think it's safe to say that her central character, uh, Victor Frankenstein, in his mission to discover the elixir of life and in his blind ambition, is meant to be this modern incarnation of Prometheus. But having said all of this, I, I also think that the theme of love plays an enormously important role in the story. I mean, without it, I don't think you can make any sense at all of the monster's motivation and the development of his character. It's without a doubt the universal human want for love that is most central to him. And it's the presence and absence of love in this story that dictates his every action, and so ultimately commands the plotline and drives the story forward. In the novel, we get uh, a lot of allusions to the book of Genesis, and it brings to mind some interesting questions about the idea of a, of a creator and the kind of role the creator has to his creation. Yeah, many references to Genesis. So to take an important one, at one point the, the monster is made to say that, quote, like Adam, I was created apparently united by no link to any other being in existence. But his state was far different from mine in every other respect. He had come forth from the hands of God, a perfect creature, happy and prosperous, guarded by the especial care of his creator. But I was wretched, helpless, and alone. End of quote. So, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious what his point is here. In Genesis, Adam, also a singular creation, unique on earth with no ties to anyone else, wakes up in Eden. But here in Eden, in paradise, which is what the word comes close to meaning in Hebrew, what we get is an enclosure of a lush and fertile garden, a, a secure place of habitat, especially created for him by God, his creator and his caregiver. Here in Eden, quote, God caused to grow every tree that was pleasing to the sight 
and good for food. End of quote. So God, at this point in time anyway, in this sort of formative stage, is a reliable and providential father, watching out over his creation, providing for his needs, ensuring that Adam is always emotionally and physically satisfied. He's always nearby, always in close communication. God even goes on to eventually provide Adam with a companion, Eve, the the mother of all of humankind. Now, just imagine the way that Adam feels at this point. Surely he must feel that he's completely united with the universe, that the very ground of being is in his favor, on his side. Imagine the, the comfort he feels in this place of protection and care, and the sort of confidence about himself and the optimism about life that this gives him. Since Adam is consistently provided with all the means for comfort and safety, he surely develops a sense of basic trust in his father and in the world at large. But now notice how completely different all of this is from Frankenstein's child, who wakes up not in Eden, but in hell, in a dark and cold workshop where he's instantly rejected by his father and creator, where Frankenstein abandons and neglects all responsibility towards his creation and completely abandons it to a world completely unprepared to accept it. How unlike Eden this is, where God was initially somewhat like a mother caring for a newborn. So, given such neglect, how is it that this poor child, the creature, could ever come to have any basic faith in existence? He can't. And unlike God, his creator, Victor Frankenstein, is all pride and no providence. In many ways, he's an appalling double for the creator God of Genesis. Yeah, he assumes the role of a God, but he fails as a creator of life in being accountable and managing what it is that he's created. By the way, a lot like many scientists seem to do in not really taking full responsibility for their penetration into and manipulation of nature. But anyway, to to continue, later in the story, the creature asks Victor, because he's so lonely now, to, to create another monster to be his companion, which of course further parallels the situation Adam had in the garden when God created Eve for him. But here too, Victor eventually refuses to do so. He denies him the opportunity to love and be loved for the second time. Now, most of us know what happens and what has been happening throughout the story. Full of anger and the sort of bitter gall of envy, the creature seeks revenge and declares war against his creator, 
which takes the form of the murder of those closest to him. And in this way, the creature parallels the the fallen angel, Satan, who in his neglect and bitterness also declared war against God. Now, is any of this a surprise? Well, not really. We all know very well that a wounded and angry heart almost always turns into a resentful and revengeful one. Uh, like you had said, Adam and Eve are, are feeling completely secure in the Garden of Eden. We don't have to get into how it all gets screwed up. But in that moment, they are feeling completely secure. And I wonder how that connects with our modern ideas on child rearing. Uh, yeah, well, for instance, what's come to be known as attachment theory, first developed by John Bowlby during the 20th century. This theory tells us that without a home, without some love and attachment at an early age, deep psychological trauma is bound to be the result. I mean, just to relate this to the novel again, I mean, look at the creature. He has no companions, no apparent ties on earth, no needs provided for. He has no home base and no secure place of habitation. Well, this is exactly how monsters are made. In any case, what attachment theory tells us is that children need to form attachments. They need to feel safe and secure from the very get-go. Like Adam in Eden, they need to be made to feel that their basic environment, their immediate surroundings, the ground of their being from which they have come, is for them rather than against them. Actually, all animals need to feel something like this, as evidenced by their clinging to the very first moving objects that they see, and to objects that, well, respond to their signals in a consistent, appropriate, and caring way. And once established, such attachment has powerful and beneficial effects. It provides a psychological home base from which children can explore their environment. Because of their secure attachment, children will feel brave enough to slowly move away from their caregivers and become acquainted with the the larger world around them. In the long term, it's beyond question that early secure attachment produces self-reliant, confident, and less anxious-ridden adults. You know, it's also kind of interesting that a, that a child's need for attachment can be seen as the same drive that later on in life leads one to seek a love partner. Now, of course, such attachments are strongest during childhood when we're completely dependent on our parents for survival. But in adulthood, we also form strong attachments to those, well, who seem to cope with the world better than we do, to those who we know will be there for us 
in case of emergency. It's an instinct that is perfectly normal and healthy. And to think it's all rooted in our childhood and the care and concern someone had for us early on. Really, you could look at Shelley in this instance being really way ahead of the curve in terms of kind of sounding the alarm bells, uh, sounding an early warning on the dangers of putting science and technology above all. Yeah, that's, as I mentioned in the beginning, one of the basic themes, and as you say, warnings in her novel. So I don't really know where to start here, but I think we should at least all the while keep this in mind, that Victor's primary motivation in creating a new life is clearly an egoistic one. I mean, he tells us himself that he wants a new species to bless him as their creator. Okay, but that said, Victor also views procreation as a technological matter, not one involving anything having to do with Mother Nature or as falling under the domain of the natural. His outlook is a scientific one, and he sees human life purely in terms of chemistry and anatomy. There's nothing mysterious and sacred about human life, and his dream of animating matter he sees as a purely technical challenge, completely circumventing conception, pregnancy, and childbirth altogether. We might see, therefore, Victor's bringing forth of life as, well, an entirely masculine act. And what I mean by this is that he sees creation as a technological operation, one that exercises domination and control over purely passive and compliant matter. He sees childbirth as a form of conquest, not as a natural unfolding and Herculean feat of endurance that so obviously resists appropriation of any kind. Then, when Victor discovers that his creation is not what he thought it would be, he recoils in disgust for what he takes to be his hideous demeanor. His son disappoints him. He won't acknowledge his only child. In this way, he reveals that he's unable to recognize the deepest kind of love, one that puts the created before the creator. And from this moment on, we see very clearly who the real monster is in this story. You know, when I think about it, it's pretty obvious that what Shelley is also warning us about here is the importance of the mother and of motherhood in general. After all, this is a story about a being created by man alone, a story about a man who tries to have a baby without a woman, as one commentator put it. And so it's a world completely devoid of the feminine. In fact, one might view Victor's project as one that's designed to eliminate the necessity of having any females at all. I mean, he even later denies the creature a female companion. 
But clearly, as we see here, the consequences of maternal absence in the life of a child are nothing short of disastrous. You know, I'm sure we've all heard the expression that someone has a face only a mother can love. Well, maybe Frankenstein's creature would never have become a monster in the first place if he had, right from the beginning, had the good grace of enjoying the love of a mother, and if he had been seen as an out-and-out gift rather than some sort of product of engineering. Okay, one last thought. I, I think that what Shelley may also be pointing out to us is the kind of distraction technology brings and how it is it prevents us from being responsive to one another. I mean, think about it. Victor totally isolates himself from his family and from the rest of the world until he finishes his invention. He can't work and love at the same time. Now, in our age of technology, where everyone is glued to their phones at all times of the day, and generally just immersed in the sucking power of technology, I wonder how much it is we are really available to one another, how much we even notice the person in front of us. You know, the, the French philosopher Gabriel Marcel talked about something he called the broken world. Now, this is the modern world we live in, which he saw as one dominated by technology, but also by general bureaucratization and abstraction. A, a result of this, Marcel thought, is a kind of turning inwards, which results in the kind of opaqueness many of us find between each other. We sit in the same room, or even on the same couch, but we're not truly open to each other. We may be communicating, but there's no communion and no fraternity. We feel, well, simply more lonely than ever before. Well, Marcel saw something he called presence as the antidote to the broken world. To be present is to put ourselves at the disposal of another, to make space within ourselves for another person, to be open to the needs and influences of others, to put down the devices and get into attunement with the person next to us. It is ultimately to break away from our preoccupation with ourselves something Victor seemed incapable of doing and for which those closest to him were made to suffer because of it. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com 
And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Dostoevsky's The Brothers K. Thank you.